Super Talk Mississippi media production. Coleman Taylor Transmission, servicing Central Mississippi for over 60 years. Their ASE certified technicians offer dependable transmission services, a warranty, and record services. Call Coleman Taylor today for all your transmission needs. What's up on a Wednesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Michael Borky. We appreciate you stopping by on a Wednesday morning, recording slightly later than usual. Not not too bad. I am uh, I'm dragging ass. I've become just the biggest wuss ever when it comes to late games. And uh, we got a lot to discuss today. Uh, we have Ole Miss basketball. They lost a what felt like a back-breaking defeat. We'll get into that some, too. I don't know. This team's probably not quitting, but it, it felt like a... a season killer type of loss to Auburn last night, 83-82 in double overtime. Bree and Tyree fouls out there, really just kind of a shot fighter after that. Uh, we'll get into some, probably some college baseball. I have Aaron Fit on, but he's not on the normal podcast. I was trying to get him on this morning, but he did not have a window. So I'm actually going to talk to him this afternoon and probably just throw that up by itself. I mean, what, like, I don't see how an extra podcast can hurt. We'll be back for Mailbag Friday. No sense in waiting till Friday either. So you'll have an extra podcast there. That should be up around two or three this afternoon, hopefully. And uh, we'll go from there. But we'll get into some baseball too. Uh, Coach K did something dumb that only Coach K gets away with. We'll probably get into that. What's up? Not a whole lot, man. And I'm with you. I'd. I tried to stay up. I did successfully stay up for that entire game last night. And I find myself, I mean, feeling bad for Ole Miss because, I, I mean, they played well enough to beat a good Auburn team. Um, offensively, they did some really nice things. So the, the question after the Georgia game was, uh, is that just a flash in the pan? Is Georgia really bad? Or or can they replicate that success offensively? And, and for the most part, they were able to do that. Um Getting the ball down low. C was, I mean, he he needs to become a better finisher, a stronger finisher at the rim. Um, but they were forcing action down low, uh, moving the ball around a little bit. Uh, Blake Henson shot selection, and and as you pointed out to me last night, game awareness uh, needs a ton of work. But looked differently offensively and played well enough to win, and just couldn't get it done. A really bad turnover uh, right before the end of the game. Uh, so, I mean, we'll talk about all that, but I, I have to bitch about something because I do this probably annually with college basketball, but games like last night are why I can't watch college basketball because it's not just isolated to this game. They played 50 minutes of basketball. There were, if I'm doing my math correctly, 49 fouls called in 50 minutes of basketball. And again, if I'm doing my math correctly, 68 free throws taken in the game. The way the games are officiated is complete garbage. Like, for example, they will call, or they will not call, like, real body contact when a guy's driving to the basket. Like, real body contact that affects the shot won't get called. But my God, if a defender on the perimeter breathes on the the guy with the basketball, a, a little touch foul gets called. It's inconsistent. The, there's no such thing as flow in a game. And the double bonus carrying through overtime is also the dumbest thing imaginable. Every whistle in two overtime periods led to two free throws. A double overtime one-point game should have been fun and exciting, and instead it dragged on forever. And there was a whistle literally every single possession of the game. It was miserable to watch. I don't know how somebody can watch that game and then turn around and tell me, because this does happen, 
that college basketball is a better product than the NBA. You are out of your mind if you think what you watched last night is a good product. It should have been, but it wasn't because there's a whistle every 30 freaking seconds of the game where we're taking free throws in overtime when a guy breathes on another one instead of just playing basketball. It's ridiculous. They need to cut it to quarters, get rid of the double bonus, and reset the fouls in overtime. It's a simple solution. That game should have been fun. It wasn't fun, and that's not why Ole Miss lost. That's not why I'm mad. They lost because they couldn't score. I mean, they had, what, one basket in the final four minutes? They just couldn't score after Tyree got in foul trouble and went down. They couldn't score. That's why they lost. But that game should have been fun and exciting and back and forth, and instead it was possession, whistle, free throws, whistle, free throws, whistle, free throws for 45 minutes of real life. And it was not – I didn't enjoy watching that basketball game last night because of that. It's absurd. Yeah, I think probably most of it, though, I think is – like well, one, you have worse officials because you have to have more of them. They aren't full-time, probably not fully properly trained – but the main reason I think is the main is the setup of college basketball. It's now the only form of basketball you have on earth that isn't four quarters. And so when you have two 20 minute halves and you have the you have the bonus set at seven fouls, like not having it reset. Like if you did four quarters, obviously it would be the same thing as it resetting at the 10 minute mark of each half. And you kind of have more of a flow and you don't have so many free throws. So even if there's a game with a lot of fouls and the whistles are warranted, the flow gets stopped. Because because I don't think the flow of a game stops when there's a touch foul on the perimeter and you throw a side out of bounds and you just kind of keep going. But when you have to walk to the other end to shoot free throws and all that, it does kind of stop it because free throws aren't appealing, free throws aren't action, and free throws aren't movement. So I, I think a lot of it would be solved. Like I don't think you're ever going to solve bad officiating college hoops. It's just not feasibly po- like it's just not feasible with the amount of people you need and the resources. I say resources. It's not really a money thing. It's just like getting all of them properly trained. They're never going to pay them. There's probably not enough guys to do it, really. Yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'll hold that thought for a little bit. I do have a thought on being a ref because I was standing on the floor for the two overtimes last night as opposed to where I normally sit. But, yeah, I think most of it is the setup just because you you have the fouls that don't reset and the double bonus. Because, I mean, if you have a – I mean, there's there's legitimate – like I've seen NBA games where you have a team gets three, four fouls and gets close to the bonus within the first four minutes of the – like fourth quarter, third quarter, whatever it may be. But the problem with that is if that happens in basketball, you're now one away from the bonus or two away from the bonus with like 16 minutes left to play, which is just uh, probably not a good system. But, yeah, uh, it was a uh, heartbreaking, back-breaking loss for Ole Miss. Uh, You know, it was interesting. The beginning of the game really went about as well as possible and about as close to script as you could possibly have it. You know, they were – they were not allowing Auburn's guards to beat him off the bounce. Uh, for whatever reason, Bruce Pearl was not taking advantage of Austin Wiley. So Auburn's an interesting team because they have like basically just two different versions of themselves where they have a big kind of bouldering center in Austin Wiley. And when he's off the floor, Auburn a lot of times is a little better and a little more flexible in terms of like they kind of put him on and they basically just run five out and have like a true stretch five, whereas Wiley's on, it's a little more traditional. But he's a force inside. So it's honestly hard for teams to game plan because once Wiley's in there, you got to account for one thing, and then when he's out, they become a totally different team. And Wiley's a good player in his own right. But point being, they were not taking advantage of him, and they were not allowing the guards to beat them. Auburn was settling for threes. They missed their first 11 threes. Their first three came with like 30 seconds left in the first half. They were 1 of 12 and 6 of 28 from the field. 
And Ole Miss, who did not play that great offensively, uh, st- despite it all, had a 17-point lead at halftime, 37-20. to 20. So the game plan was good. It was working. They were up 17 when Bree and Tyree only had four points. You were getting the secondary scoring. Blake Henson was making shots early. K.J. Buffin and then Schuler, who for whatever reason against Auburn just seems to bring it every single year, was making shots. And the second half, it just kind of unraveled. They started getting beat off the dribble. They got in foul trouble. Auburn shot a ton of free throws in the second half. And they Auburn just kind of kept chipping away at the lead. But then Ole Miss would extend it back out to five, extend it back out to eight. And then the game really, for all intents and purposes, I know it didn't actually. And then when Tyree fouled out, with 5.15 left, I think this game, I mean, I, I looked at Neil or whoever was sitting next to me uh, and Nate, and I was like, this this is over. They don't have a shot. They foul out. He, Tyree fouls out with 5.15 left. He had kind of a frustrating game. He got, he took a hard spill, Got was a victim of a hard foul, kind of was playing on what appeared to be a bum ankle, leg, something there. But fouls out with 5.15 left, and Ole Miss was just completely discombobulated offensively. Just really didn't stand much of a chance. I mean, Tyree fouled out with 5.15 left. Ole Miss was up nine. Ole Miss didn't have a field goal for the rest of regulation. I mean, they limped to overtime because Auburn fouled them twice, and they made three out of four free throws. So they limped to overtime. Auburn closes it, I guess, on a 12-3 run at 66-66 to get to overtime. But, like, it's it's. I mean, this really kind of underscored the underlying issue or overarching issue, I guess, to be the better phrase, with this team – when Brian Tyree is off the floor, it is staggering how much different the team looks, and it's not in a good way. I mean, you saw it last night. He leaves the floor. Pearl puts on a press that uh, he said after the game they hadn't shown all year. It was like a little wrinkle they added just to kind of speed Ole Miss up. You know, when you're up 10, you don't need to play fast. But, man, Austin Crowley and Devontae Shuler, I think, was just tired. Crowley was just kind of out of sorts. When Bryce Williams is in there, he wasn't very much better. And I mean, they weren't even getting open shots. Like they weren't getting to the rim. Like they they would they would kind of sling it around once they like getting it up half court to half court was uh, seemingly an accomplishment. And then they would just take the first open jumper. Like I mean, to me the the game like Ole Miss looked irrecognizably different from when Tyree fouled out. Yeah, they did. Um, and he's the facilitator of the entire offense. They were. I mean, they they were trying. And I was texting you about it last night. Something I noticed is. They gave Auburn so many pick-and-roll looks, but the guard would would never attack either. So they'd run the pick-and-roll, and the guard wouldn't attack. And the big, after he would give the pick, he would roll and have his hands up looking for the entry pass, and they would almost never drop it off to the big on the entry. So they're giving a pick-and-roll look, but the guard, instead of attacking the PNR, would literally just dribble backwards. So they would provide the look, but wouldn't execute the set. And I... Look, Kermit knows more than I do. Maybe that's something that he was telling them to do just to provide some movement on the floor to create spacing. But even if your bigs aren't great, like I said earlier, C needs to just be stronger, a stronger finisher. But you had opportunities where your rolling big was open for what would have been a pretty easy pass and layup, and they just chose not to distribute the basketball that way. It was kind of frustrating to watch. I'm thinking – Look, you're running the set, and it's there, but you're choosing not to go through with it. Did you see the same thing, or am I just overthinking a small layer to the game? No, I mean, it was there, but I think that just kind of speaks to the overall, just like when he's when Tyree's off the floor, they don't have guys that, like, like 
this is way too broad of a term, but you kind of hear basketball guys use it all the time. You don't have guys that, a lot of time that know what they're doing. Like, I mean, Crowley looked discombobulated out of sorts. C is not a very instinctual player. Neither is Henson at times either. Well, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? The the final sequence that ended the game. Yeah, we can get to that in a second. But like it 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 it, it just they they just looked out of sorts. I mean, I get in college basketball, you're going to have long stretches without field goals. It's just you don't have enough good players. Like the you know you can throw a little more junky defenses at them. But I mean. Until Schuler's floater went down in overtime with like three twelve left, that ended a seven-minute field goal stretch, a field goal drought. And to be honest with this team, if you took Tyree out of the game, most of the time I'm setting over under on Ole Miss's next field goal unless someone hits, just gets lucky and hits a jumper at like three and a half or four minutes. Like if yeah. someone was like, you know, when are they going to score another field goal? I'd honestly probably say it's going to take them three or four minutes. I mean, it's that bad. But the irony of this game was that overall, the secondary scoring was there. You had 26 points from Devontae Shuler. You had 16 from Blake Henson. You had 13 from a DMC with seven rebounds. But it was almost like an NBA game in the sense that the scoring was very hollow to where they scored those points, and that was great, and that kept them in it. But when push came to shove, and like in an NBA game, particularly a playoff game, in the last four minutes when you have to run, you know, when you're not getting cheap baskets in transition or getting turnovers or whatever, and you're having to actually run good half-court offense and have a shot, a guy create and make shots, they just couldn't do it because their best creator and shot maker was sitting on the bench you know, with the towel in his mouth just kind of watching in agony, you know, pretty much helpless. And I think he kind of knew that he was helpless at that point. So it, it was weird because they got the scoring in the stat sheet, but in the game's most crucial possessions, they just they, they were completely out of sorts. But – it's like they, but it was interesting. They get to overtime, and I was sitting there, and I was like, "Well, this this is over." And they get behind, and then Auburn really kind of gave it to him, gave it, let him back in at the end of the first overtime. They had the bad foul at the end. Like uh, how it got to a second overtime was a little amazing to me. Sure, to his credit, hit a couple of big free throws to get it to the second overtime, and then C fouls out, and you're just kind of like, "Man, I get." I, <laughs> <laughs> they are really running on fumes here. I mean, it was it was a fighter on its last leg. But, I mean, Shuler, 6 of 10 from the field, 26 points, 13 of 18 from the free throw line. The man played 48 minutes. Henson played 49 minutes. Like, I mean, they, they I kind of felt bad for him in that sense. They gave it all they had, but just they're just not the same team when he's off the floor. And their late game execution was terrible, as what you were about to get to. Is, well, and then when they had, what was it, 2.1 left, in the, the game, two, the they had the, the ball two, on their both, own baseline. Yeah, the the end of the both the overtimes was not great. Uh, real quick, we'll get to the here. We'll get to the end game sequence in just a second. I need to take a break and tell you about LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, go see Greg. I had a uh, listener of the show and a friend of mine text me and say that they got uh, shoot, I can't remember off the top of my head. They got some sort of sausage and they got one of the Lane Kiffin specials before they went to their hunting camp this weekend and said it was absolutely delicious. So go see him, University Avenue across from Kroger, uh, best place in Oxford to get meat. They had the Swayze sausage, ribeye sausage, and a Lane Kiffin special and grilled it uh, while they went hunting and said it was awesome. So go see him. He's got uh, daily specials, custom cuts, plate lunches. Go see Greg. He's got it going on over there. Stop by for the Super Bowl and uh, put something on the grill and watch the game this weekend. Uh so go see him, University Avenue, across from Kroger. Anyway, 
as I was getting to the other part of this game that sucked was there, as you pointed out there, late game execution. They had a chance to win this game at the end of both overtimes. They had the ball at 2.2 seconds left, and then they had the ball at the end of the second overtime with about 10 seconds left. And just execution was bad. On-court awareness wasn't good. The first one, they ran kind of this like like you-cutting action to try to get Blake Henson the ball near half court with his momentum going towards the basket with 2.2 left. And uh, Schuler slung the ball to the near sideline out of bounds and actually gave Auburn another shot to win it. Just, uh, I mean, that's a mistake. Well, and then the Auburn player, instead of letting the ball go out of bounds, he possessed the ball, then called timeout, which knocked, I mean, it wasn't much, but knocked some time off the clock for him. So even Auburn in that situation had bad end-of-game awareness. Well, I could correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if nobody touches the basket and he lets it go out of bounds, Auburn gets an out under the bat, their own basket instead of the side out. Do they not? If it's not touched, they would have possessed it in the same spot, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So they yeah, would have actually yeah, had yeah, done of exactly. an out under right. from their own sideline. So it was yep. just a, it's, it's a comically bad display of basketball at the end of the game because <laughs> Auburn's execution wasn't great at the end of their game, I mean, at the end, in their final possessions either. But, yeah, so the kid, uh, Schuler slings that out of bounds, and the Auburn kid touches it. Instead of he doesn't touch it, Auburn gets to drop a play out from under their own basket instead of, you know, 56 feet away from the rim with the second and a half left. But, anyway, Auburn misses. They go to another overtime. And then, before, like, I guess before we get to that, I thought the interesting part in the second overtime was they had their best two to three possessions of the game. They – uh. Buffin was playing the five because they had no choice at that point because C fouled out. And they had Wiley on him, and they finally gave KJ a little bit of freedom. They gave him the ball in like an isolation type thing and cleared out. And he took Wiley to the rim twice over his left shoulder and laid it up. I guess once was over his left, the other was over his right. And they were up by four, and I was like, oh, man, they're act- they might actually pull this off. And I thought that was their best two trips of the game because they actually looked – kind of functional, you know, in you know, in running sets and getting getting clean looks. And then they didn't score for the next minute 43 Auburn scores on their next three possessions and leads 83-82 with a minute 43 left. And it was interesting. That was the score with like uh, what? A hundred something I guess right at a hundred seconds on the clock and no one scored again. That like the final score 83-82 was the score of the minute 43 remaining in the game. But <sighs> As you were yeah. about to get to the end of the game, where uh, where Ole Miss had the ball after they got yet another stop, their defense towards down the stretch, as bad as the offense was, was awesome. But the uh, the final sequence in double overtime was quite bad. Yeah, and you don't want to, you know, harp on a kid, but still, Blake Henson gets a rebound with nine seconds left, and then like just holds the basketball there for a little while, and. I mean, that is just the beginning of what was an awful stretch of basketball. People were calling for Kermit Davis to call a timeout there, and I completely understand why. But in a moment like that, when you've been attacking the basket and going downhill and you're only down by one, I mean, they're calling anything, really. So if you can get somebody going downhill, attacking a defense that's not set yet, not calling the timeout there is perfect. If you've got somebody that you know will attack and go downhill at the rim, that's better than calling a timeout and setting up a play, especially when you have no faith in your shooters. The Not calling the timeout was not the problem. It was Blake Hinson pulling up from three when you're only down by one when you should have attacked the basket otherwise. That is the problem. And uh, I mean, 
And Kermit said so after the game that, well, that's not the shot we wanted there. And he's right. That's not throwing the kid under the bus like we talked about uh, last week. That's just, that shouldn't have happened. That is terrible basketball situational awareness. I don't think they should have called a timeout there. Because if you, if they would have pushed the, the envelope, if Henson comes down with that board, and instead of waiting there for a second, they immediately push and then attack the basket instead of settling for that three-point shot, that's the best opportunity you would have gotten at tying or winning that basketball game. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it there. And what's interesting is that even when, even though he paused, which the pause shows he doesn't really have late good, like that's bad on-court awareness. Maybe he thought Kermit was going to call a timeout. He, I guess he could have called it himself. I don't really know. But, I mean, he paused after he got the rebound. You're down one with nine seconds left and the clock quickly melting off. And he had, you know, I guess for a second, it was almost seeming as if he thought he had 35 seconds left. But even with that aside, once he gets it up court, he still has plenty of time. I mean, I, I don't know exactly when he shot it, but I think it was about two and a half, three seconds left. That's, I mean, that's an infinite amount of time when you're talking about 23 feet away from the rim. And Kermit, as you mentioned, he said after the game, he didn't want to call timeout because Auburn was showing a zone look. They were look like they were, look, like they were trying to get in a zone look, I should say. So when you have them, the opposing team changing defenses, you can kind of catch them off guard. And on top of that, you're only down one. And so if you can get something downhill and towards the rim, like with the way that game's being officiated, you can at least chance a foul call. Like, it, I mean, at least give it a shot. Henson and Schuler needs the ball there. I mean, he, he did such a great job of creating contact. Um, that that's who needs the ball in, in that moment in the game. I agree, but I, I, I'll give him a little bit of a pass on that because when you get a rebound after a defensive stop and you're not like inbounding the ball and able to kind of like, I guess, set up or regroup or whatever, I, I don't necessarily mind that as much to where you're just trying to get down and get the best look as possible. But then Henson, who has the greenest light on earth, uh, eventually, he, he settles for a you know 22, 20-whatever 20 foot jump shot instead of getting to the rim it clangs off and Ole Miss loses so I mean I get not calling the timeout that not the look they wanted at the end they needed something going to the rim you know that kind of just under I mean, that kind of highlights just this team like lack of awareness lack of execution at the end of games because they're close like it's a, like, to me it's indisputable that they're getting better and playing better basketball but they're just not doing the things necessary to win as we just highlighted like a comedy of errors down the stretch when the game mattered most and you're set back with, to me, this is a back-breaking defeat. They're now one in six and have to go to LSU. And just, I mean, that, like, I guess if you want to go macro for a second, the flip side of this was if they won this, they're two and five with a road trip at LSU who's beatable and some little bit vulnerable. And then their next three games at home. I mean, if they won that, they had a chance, as bad as the, I know this sounds nuts, but as bad as the field is this year, they had a chance to kind of crawl back into the conversation. And instead, they're just one, they're one in six, as Kermit said after the game. I don't really feel like a one in six team. I, I tend, if, you, if he'd have said that after Tennessee, I'd have been like, you're nuts, man. How did this team win a game? But I kind of agree with him in that sense. They're close. You know, they've played seven league, league games, and they've blown four double-digit leads. Oh, my God. I, I mean, Arkansas. I didn't even 10, realize it was that bad. Arkansas up ten plus, A and M up ten plus, LSU up ten plus, and then last night they blew a seventeen point halftime lead. They've been up double digits in four of the seven games they played, and they're one and six. Ooh, that's brutal. 
but that does underscore how they're cut. They're not t- like they're not a terrible basketball team. They like, are they, not as bad as the record tells you they are. No, but the, and they but they've had stretches at times this year where they like the Tennessee game was just horrendous. Like they looked awful. They looked every bit the part of their record yeah. and everything. They've had bad stretches, but collectively they're not that bad of a team. I mean, if you're sitting here. At, Three and four right now, four and three. They're right there in the mix of it for a tournament berth. If they can have a good month and a half close to the season, but now I mean, there's way too much ground to be made up, and they're not going to make it up. But that just felt like a brutal backbreaking defeat for them last night. And and we'll see how backbreaking it was. You know, they got to refocus and, like you said, winnable game. Even Will Wade wiretap Will um, in his most recent press conference straight up said that. Hey, I, we are not as good as our record says we are. He's like, we've got problems, and and I forget the exact quote, but I, I'm paraphrasing. They've got problems. He knows they have problems. Don't look at the record because they've got a ton of work to do. So vulnerable LSU team, if if they can refocus and keep running the offense the way that they've done, far less ball sticking with one guy the last couple of games. I mean, there's a lot more of a concerted effort to get other guys clean and open looks with the exception of, you know, the bad situational awareness and shot selection late in that game. They moved the basketball around a lot. They created good looks down low for their bigs. I mean, K.J. Buffin, I thought, um, a lot more aggressive, uh, especially in overtime. That one, uh, that dunk from the side, it was great spacing created. I think it was C. Uh, Whoever the big was in at the time, created the space for him to have a strong drive like that at the rim. They need more of that from him. There are encouraging signs, like you've said. It's just, it's frustrating. I can't imagine how they feel in the locker room knowing how close they are, and yet close only counts in horse grenades. So it's frustrating as hell for them, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I, because, like, I mean, we keep talking the same point over it, but, I mean, it's worth repeating. Like, they're, they're damn close. Like, they're a bounce or two away from being right there in the middle in the middle of it. But, you know, I kind of made this point, and this wasn't exactly what I meant because the league hasn't really been as strong as I thought. But I did kind of say before the season, there's going to be one or two teams that are just going to be kind of swallowed up by the league and probably be a pretty good team but have a crap record and not be able to make it to the tournament. And that's sort of true for Ole Miss, but the league's not nearly as tough as I thought. There's a bunch of average teams. There's not really that many terrible teams. Uh, and no great team. So it didn't happen the way I thought. But the Ole Miss is kind of suffering that reality right now, though most of it is for their, from their own undoing. But to your point about LSU, Ole Miss, they're not in, anywhere close to the same team. But if you're going off results, LSU is kind of the inverse Ole Miss to where they've won a ton of close games. And some of it's been because they've made plays down the stretch. Like I would count Texas in that, even though that's not a league game, but I watched that one. Uh, Ole Miss, a couple others, but then others have just been kind of dumb luck where they kind of tried to piss it away like when they almost lost to Florida and just kind of got fortunate. So you need some breaks in this league and you need to be good in the final two minutes. And Ole Miss has gotten neither and been neither, and that's why they're one and six. So tough one for Kermit, but I, I do think if you're like, I mean, if you're looking for positive signs, you got production again from Henson. Buffin and C to compliment Tyree and then 26 from Schuler. I mean, they could have used half of that for the last seven games and been in a better place, but for whatever reason, he always seems to bring it against Auburn. And uh, so tough one for Ole Miss. There's not really a whole lot else you can say right there at LSU on Saturday. 
I don't know the time of that game off the top of my head. I'll look it up real quick. But uh, I am becoming. I don't, a don't either, to tell you the truth, and that's probably something that that we should know. Is LSU ranked? Uh, they no, I don't believe LSU's ranked. I believe this is a 11 a.m. game. Yeah, it is. Uh, so maybe a subdued atmosphere in Baton Rouge a little bit too, which could help. Yeah. So and what's I've become a gigantic wuss when it comes to these late basketball games. I'm not really complaining about the time. I'm just the next day. I've just become a complete and total wuss. Like. I, I don't have to have a ton of sleep. Like, I can run on no sleep. Like, if I have to get up, like, 5 or 6 in the morning, if I'm in bed, like, 10 or 11, cool, I'm good. But for whatever reason, when I crawl in bed and I see the clocks at, like, 12.45 or 1, I'm just a gigantic wussy about getting up the next day and getting stuff done. I don't really know why. I think it's just a mental block. But something about going to bed late is just, and yet when you have to get up remotely early has just become, like, my, my new fire fest. I don't really, like... <laughs> <laughs> like this was like the end of the world for me this morning, and I don't really know why. But it's ways that you have kids. Tips. Yeah, I know. I'm, my I'm, my I'm poor wife this touch. morning was pumped up because the baby slept for five and a half hours straight. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that's that a tough one. I'm, yeah, I, I'm I'm screwed when it comes to that. So, but I guess we're, we're where do you want to hit next? We can go into a little bit of baseball. There's this. <laughs> This Coach K thing going on. Oh, I didn't know. We had a programming note. So I found out what happened to uh, Mailbag Friday last week. So I guess a little inside baseball here. Before we record on Monday, I pointed out to you. I said, man, the numbers on our Mailbag Friday are insanely low. I was like, I didn't think it was that shitty of a show. I call it maybe maybe one of us we said never something. do shitty shows. That's all we do is great. Maybe we one of us said something wildly offensive in the first five minutes, and everyone cut it off before it counts as a listen. I was like, what is going on here? Because like the numbers on it were literally like one fifth of what we normally get. I was like, what is happening here? And then Monday afternoon, I had a friend of mine who's been listening for a while, text me and be like, hey, why was there no Friday podcast? And I was like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? And then as soon as he texted me that, I started checking Apple Podcasts, and I was like, I know what's going on here. So for whatever reason, the Mailbag Friday didn't upload to Apple Podcasts. And that's a SoundCloud glitch because it went out to all the other mediums, Spotify, as best I can tell, wherever else you get your podcast, it was there. But I know Apple Podcasts is the main one people use. And it wasn't there, and so I had to ref- or I got Will to refresh, uh, like to refresh it and have it send it out again. And it was up there, but it didn't get up there till Monday. I say all of that to say, if you don't like see a podcast that's supposed to be there, unless we've said we aren't doing one, uh, please like reach out to me because like there was, I'll start checking it, but like there was really no way I would have known that because that was really nothing on our end. It was a SoundCloud deal. So if you ever see something like that and it's like noon or one or two in the afternoon one day or even a day after and there's nothing up, uh, just reach out to me because obviously it's probably something like that. But, yeah, so that's what happened on Friday. So now you have Mailback Friday up uh, two and a half days late. So uh, go dive in. <laughs> um, speaking of before we move on from uh, the old Miss topics, uh, so here's kind of a, a take that not everybody will agree with. I've been trying to follow the uh, the Zach Evans recruitment, and it keeps taking turns. And I mean, Tennessee tried to visit him apparently, and like he just ghosted them. Basically, it, it's a mess. And uh, Ole Miss it is going to do worth it, the trouble. Talent aside, that's, that's what I was going to say. Is if it was a different position group, 
if he was a defensive tackle, uh, if he was even a, a defensive back, wide receiver maybe, I, I would say that Ole Miss should just take the risk because he's too talented. But considering what they already have in the running back room, which is two guys that you know do well in the SEC and Ely and, and Snoop Connor, and you've already signed two guys, uh, one of which is a, um, a high-profile recruit in his own right, and another local Mississippi guy, you've got a good, deep, and talented running back room. I don't think it's worth the risk anymore. This just, it feels like trouble. And I know he's talented and maybe even a game changer, but it doesn't feel worth it to me. Because this very well could work out and he go to Ole Miss and he's a good steward. And I don't know the kid personally, so maybe he's a great kid that just is being pulled in a lot of different directions. But recruitments like this, I think you should stay away from, especially when you don't need the position. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, this, this From the start, and I've been pretty consistent in the fact that like we don't keep up with the minutia of recruiting like other sites do, like the, the fan sites and the recruiting board sites, just because it's not necessarily our niche. But obviously, I keep up with it enough to know like this seems like a mess, and to your like to your point, I agree. Like if it's not if it was running back, if it's somewhere other than running back, it's like okay, why not? Like if it doesn't work out, it's just a scholarship, kid leaves, whatever. But like they they seem pretty set the running back position. I get you want a five star kid and I want a kid that talented, but at a certain point, it's like like you can see the writing on the wall. I mean, you you can see you can see. I mean, if the kid's behaving this way, and I get kids grow up, but like. In his first two years, are you really going to grow up that much at 18 and 19? Maybe by the time he's 20, 21. And that's well, that, especially when he's either. not going to play right away. Yeah, exactly. And I, I imagine, uh, you know, basket case kid uh, gets to campus and doesn't play right away. That doesn't sound like a, a, a solvable puzzle. So I agree. I think they should just kind of let this one go. But again, like, I'm not necessarily knocking them for sticking with it. Maybe they've already decided this. Maybe this is something they're leaning towards. I, I am not privy to that information. I'm not sure. But I, I, if, if, I, if it were me, and I've obviously not paid millions of dollars to coach Ole Miss football, but like I, I, at this point, I would just beg to, to hell with this guy. Yeah, I just I don't see the, uh, the benefit. I really don't. And maybe they just love him, and they think that he'll help. And I don't know, man. I, just, I, I know that recruitments like this can lead to some really bad things for you down the road. And it just it doesn't feel worth it to me, especially when you've got positions of need elsewhere. And I mean, guys that they're in on, they had a Florida commit wide receiver that they have a real shot at. Um, and of course, you can recruit multiple guys at once. I just maybe allocate your resources elsewhere and, and just just be done with it and let Tennessee deal with it or let Georgia deal with it or let potentially a community college or junior college deal with it. it just. Ole Miss doesn't need that stuff right now. I mean, they've got, like I've said, a running back room that does not need a, a potential headache. They don't. The risk is worth it if it was a defensive lineman or even an offensive lineman or wide receiver or whatever. It's just not worth it here. But anyway, um, we got. We can hit this Coach K thing, and then we can go around the SEC and hoops. What a quick. lunatic that guy is! I wish one of the students would have hit him with an OK boomer. <laughs> before before we get to that, we'll take another break and tell you to uh, remind you to go by LB's University Avenue. 
uh, be like my friends and go get the Swayze sausage, ribeye sausage, and maybe a couple Lane Kiffin specials, University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. He's the man. Probably have him on Friday, maybe. I'm not going to be in studio on Friday, so I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do that. We'll figure that out. But maybe get him to talk some meat, talk some football, whatever, what have you. Uh, but go see him, University Avenue across from Kroger. Appreciate Greg sponsoring the show. Go see LBs. It is the best. But, yeah, so Coach K last night, I didn't see much college hoops, obviously, because Ole Miss had the game. But I – something – I don't know what happened last night. The students – so they were playing Pitt, and the student section was chanting at Jeff Capel, who, of course, uh, coached at – was an assistant at Duke for a while, played at Duke. And, like, I don't know. You may be more – informed on this situation i don't know what happened i just know coach k acted like a child what what was the background they there? were chanting something in his direction um see i, I think i actually saved a uh, usa today article on that no i didn't but i'll find it it just popped up on my feed um but yeah they were chanting something in his direction uh and as you know the students are right on top of the courts so whatever's being chanted um everybody can hear but the coach after the game it, said he didn't take any offense to it at all, like that it's all good. That's what happens when you go play at Duke is they have the best student section in college basketball, and you're going to catch some hell. That's just what comes with it. I'll, yeah, here we go. Um, he said he had no problem with the Cameron Crazies chant that got Coach K fired up. Let's see if I can find the quotes. Um, the students were chanting, Jeff Capel, sit with us. That seems pretty... Um, nothing. I mean, holy shit. That's nothing at all. I'm looking up at a, a Twitter, terrible source from Rachel, but a, the Duke Barstool accounts is Jeff Capel sit with us like we do all former Duke players and recruits. I guess just talking about, like, come join the student section. I don't know. Um, and, and Capel tweeted that he took no offense and retweeted a note a Duke fan had snapped from the dirt sheet that the student section gets to taunt opponents, which said nothing bad to say here. Love you, Capel. That's what they're... So, I guess Ole Miss doesn't do it, but the Duke student section passes out sheets of paper with all their chants on them and, you know, like players' girlfriends and sisters and stuff on them. On that sheet of paper, it said nothing to say here, or nothing bad to say here, love you, Capel, about the coach. And Mike Krzyzewski went off on the students for chanting, sit with us. Okay. I didn't like Coach K to begin with, but what a clown. Yeah, he's the only guy that gets – so it's a weird thing to lose your mind about. Like, he's over there yet. For those of you who hadn't seen the clip, like, I I guess I'd encourage you to go look at it so you can better understand what we're talking about. But he goes over to the student section and just starts yelling at him like like an angry – like. I would say it's like an angry father, but to be truthful, he's acting like a child, saying like he's one of us and like literally just screaming and like beating his chest, like losing his mind. And I don't really get that. Like I, I get, I'll give him a little bit of a pass in the sense that I know he like emotional week for everyone in the basketball world with the passing of Kobe Bryant. I know Kay coached him for a good while on the U.S. national team, but like he's the only coach that gets away with this type of crap. Like I mean, I saw a few basketball guys make this point last night. This is Calipari or, or Sean Miller or who, whatever name any other coach that's been around for a while. Like it's endlessly on repeat. People are making fun of him, but somehow K gets away with the sanctimonious bullshit all the time. I mean, I can't tell you how many examples of this there are. 
I remember a couple years ago, I think it may have been Dylan Brooks who plays for the Grizzlies now. Uh, Duke, like, uh, I think Oregon beat him in a tournament game. And Brooks was like talking trash or whatever. And Kay stopped him on the court like as the game was ending. He was like, don't do that. You're too good of a player. And it wasn't even that big of a deal. But then Kay lied about it. And his press was like, that's not what I said to him. And you could see it clear as day. Like, I mean, I'm not a lip reading expert. You can see it. And he's just like, no, I didn't say that. It's like, I mean, they're playing the side by side of you saying that as he's saying, I didn't say that. Like that kind of crap. Like he gets away with that kind of crap all the time. Like notice no one really kind of put Duke in the crosshairs for paying players even though they suddenly started getting all the one and dones, like that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's amazing. Man, when he gets it, away with like he, Zion was for sale. He was. Well, and like, it's amazing what he gets away with because college basketball filled with kind of sleazeballs and frauds. I mean, yeah, the FBI investigation, all that, but he's like the biggest one and then gets treated. like He's one of the biggest ones I would say, and gets treated like a saint. I mean, the man's 70 years old and has jet black hair. You're telling me he's probably not what he seems on the surface. Like, come on. <laughs> like, it's just, it, it amazes and then he gets me to coach Team USA. With. On top of all that, he gets to coach Team USA, which I have heard multiple players now say that that was the difference in picking Duke or somewhere else. So he gets an unfair advantage on the surface and gets away with everything. I, it's a joke. And this is not one of those situations. It bothers me when people hate greatness just because they're great. I, I think it's ridiculous. Like, uh, even Tom Brady to some degree, I know he's earned it with the deflate gate and whatnot, but I think a lot of people hate Tom Brady because he's successful and he's good-looking and he married a supermodel. Uh, uh, that's a societal thing. People hate greatness just because they're great and want them to fail. But that's not the case here. It's shit like this. Like, what are you doing? Why are you yelling at your students when they're chanting something so mundane, acting like a petulant child? I really wish one of the students would have just yelled back at him and seen what he'd have done. Well, I mean, what's the all the rage going around the internet now? What if someone was just like, "Okay, boomer" or whatever all the kids okay, are saying, boomer. "The old beeper." <laughs> I'm surprised there wasn't a sign in the student section that said that already. They should have just thrown it at him. But anyway, yeah, but that's did you just see their faces. They were terrified of him. Oh, God, okay, I'll defend. I'll, I'll defend him in that moment. If I'm sitting that close to the court in that old raggedy gym. And he's screaming at me and behaving like that. Like in the moment, I'm probably a little shell shocked too. Like, cause I'm sitting there. Cause I, I imagine, cause they did look terrified, but I imagine given what they were chanting, I imagine those kids, particularly on the front row, are wondering why he's doing that and what the hell is going on. Yeah. Like, what did we do? And yeah. I mean, like, I don't understand. Like, like in like, school, if you ever got yelled at for something you clearly weren't doing, like, what did I, what? You're so confused that you're getting yelled at that you just kind of freeze. It had to have been the case last night. <laughs> okay, so here's a, a Pit, Pits, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, great newspaper article about this. It just I haven't opened the story yet, but it just popped up across my uh, computer screen. That's a quote from Coach K that says, uh, basically, it's an apology, but it's not an apology. It says, it was a mistake on my part, but I'd rather make a mistake in defense of my guy than not. Oh, okay, you're man. such a loser. That's a, yeah. oh that's a classic, like, I love the, like, I'm going to apologize, but also here's why I wasn't that wrong type type of thing. You got to love that. I mean, it's Coach K to a T. Like, notice he has some kind of, and I'm not trying to, like, make light of any sort of health issues uh, at all. Like, notice he always has some kind of something flare up whenever uh, the team is performing poorly. I mean, hell, they lost to Stephen F. Austin earlier this year, and he, no one, not very many people noticed this or saw this, but he said, like after a couple of days after the game, he's like, "Yeah, I wasn't really feeling that great that day." Like not saying it had anything to do with it. It's like, dude, 
you lost. Like, come, come on. Like, it's, it's, it's really childish. Like, I, it's, it's amazing that. I, well, like you like, said earlier, imagine if Calipari did that after they lost to Evansville. Uh, it would drive people nuts. I mean, Calipari doing nothing drives people nuts. So I, I like John Calipari so much more than I do Coach K. I like him too. I mean, I, I like him. I mean, I enjoy – I love it when he comes to the pavilion. I really enjoy listening to that guy talk. Because he doesn't act like he's better than everybody else. He knows exactly what he's doing and, and how he does it. And he just doesn't act like he's morally superior and he does it the right way. He knows what he's doing. And he's – I mean, I, I like him a lot. And I think, yeah, it's easier to win when you have a bunch of NBA players. But we've said this before on the radio show. It's true, though. Every year – he has to get a bunch of 18-year-olds to play together and win. And that's a lot harder than you think, talent aside. And he does it every year. Yeah. And with him, like, he's, he's like, he comes in, he, like, he, he's one of those guys, like, so there's something charming about a guy that can sell you uh, a load of bullshit and know he's selling you a load of bullshit and doing it with a smile. Like, that's yeah. what I always think with Cal the whole time. And it, it, it honestly cracks me up. Like, he's just a big, like, he comes in. He always compliments the pavilion. He makes the same cheesy joke about the squirrel in the tad pad. Like he talks about, like even after after he wins, he talks about what a great team Ole Miss is. Now, you can tell he's not being a hundred percent genuine, but he's got this like shit-eating grin on his face at the same time. To where, like for whatever reason, it's just great. I'm like, please lie to me more. Like I, I, yeah. I would, I could do hours of this. So the way uh, yeah. he acts, I mean, he's like he's telling you he's lying. He's being honest by lying somehow. Yeah, he's just full of it, and somehow he does it in a very charming way. It, it like, like when he does the interviews and all the framed NBA player jerseys, he's got like propped up on his couch and stuff behind him. Like, yeah, yeah I, this is just how my living room is all the time. Oh, oh, he, you mean Anthony Davis? Oh, yeah, uh, John Wall. Yeah, they're just sitting on my couch. These framed jerseys. Uh, they're, they're just they're always right there. Well, why do you ask? <laughs> a friend of mine covers Kentucky uh, locally for them up there for the two four seven side up there, and he, he, Cal doesn't really do local media at all. Like I would say, he's like Kiffin on steroids, where he only talks to national guys. Like doesn't really have a relationship. Probably doesn't know very many of their names other than Jerry Tipton, who's been there for nine hundred and eighty years. But like Cal always. I mean, it happens each time he comes to Ole Miss too. He just kind of like backhanded insults them, like kind of playfully talking about how they don't actually know anything about basketball. And it's just like the biggest back and forth, like give and take thing on earth. It cracks me up. But yeah, anyway, Coach K, probably, uh, probably not the most genuine guy on earth. Lastly, I, uh, I don't, I don't think we have a ton else to get to. But I did promise some baseball talk. I thought that would include an Aaron Fit interview. But again, we will have that up this afternoon. A lot of you, by the time you're listening to this, it will probably be up two, three o'clock on Wednesday. Hoping to have that up for you. I don't think there's any sense in or shall I hold it for Thursday. I don't know. Yeah, do that. All right, yeah, well, I mean, I, we can talk a little baseball. That's what that's what people want anyway, especially after the loss. Uh, yeah, scratch last that. I'll, night. I'll put the fit thing up Thursday, so you'll have a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday podcast. Uh, not a hero, but if you want to call me one, that that works too. But yeah, so we we're two and a half weeks out from college baseball season. I'll probably start doing written positional previews on ooh, probably Thursday. Wait, Friday we're still two and a half weeks. Shit. I think it's, I say two and a half weeks. We're two weeks from Friday. So okay. the season starts two weeks from this coming Friday. I'll probably start doing positional previews either Friday or Monday. I, don't, I hadn't really decided. Uh, there are really no rules here. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. But uh, Ole Miss, interesting team. We've talked about it some a little bit. 
uh, last week's show, got into, like I would say, the surface of it. Probably going to pitch it pretty well. Uh, will they hit outfield? Your guess is as good as mine. It's interesting, the baseball guys who seem to have made a pretty big, right, a pretty smooth adjustment have probably as, I would, wouldn't give them quite as great a shot as some other guys that have been there through the fall as earning the starting job, but they've got as good a chance as anyone to contribute. It, I, one thing that sticks out to me on this team, there's only two left-handed pitchers on the roster, and one of them's Doug Nikhazy, and the other one is the Jackson Kimbrell kid, who I'm not even sure is slated to play this year, but you could go into a year with an all-right-handed bullpen. It's not necessarily the end of the world, but, man, if you're ever trying to play matchups, it's really just not an option for Ole Miss. Um, tell me about these baseball guys. I was told yesterday – for whatever it's worth, that um, Ely is far more likely to play and have a significant role uh, than Plumley. Do you believe that to be true? And uh, what kind of roles do you expect that they have? Sure. So it's interesting because you remember Ely was an actual draft prospect. Plumley really wasn't. Like I, I had a harder time when they were coming up and they were doing the two-sport thing, and I even wrote about them doing the two-sport thing back in August. I had a hard time figuring out what kind of prospect, like what kind of, I say prospect, what kind of baseball player Plumley was. Like what, like what, like he, like I think he's a guy that's kind of a little bit of a, I don't want to say light hitter, but like probably more of a gap to gap guy, steals some bases, pretty good defender, I imagine, because of his athleticism, where Ely was actually a pretty toolsy draft prospect. I mean, at one time was projected as a top round pick, didn't end up finishing that way after his senior year. So why was that, that? Was it hitting? Because I do remember back in the yeah, day, I mean, it was hit. like, yeah, Ely's going to sign with Ole Miss and play running back. However, he's a first round baseball prospect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, hell, he hit. I mean, I don't want to knock the kid, but he hit two seventy his senior year at prep. Like that's not exactly cutting it for a guy that's going to sign for seven figures with an MLB club, which is fine. I mean, that happens to plenty of kids. But yeah, so I, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, like I said, the, he was an actual like draft prospect on teams' radars to kind of go out of high school uh, for a period of time. And to whereas Plumlee, not, not really, or definitely not nearly as much. So I would agree with that. Like, I think Ely probably provides a little bit more at the plate, probably a bit of a more polished and seasoned outfielder because it was, Ely is a little bit interesting. I'm not comparing him to Jake Mangum, but he's a little bit of a, a, a rare breed in baseball nowadays to where he's a elite defender that hits pretty well, but doesn't necessarily drive the ball out of the ballpark a ton. So, I, I mean, that and that plays like hell in college. You can still very much play like that in college. So, I, I think he would definitely have a shot. That would make sense. I, but a, ahead of the guys that are there in the fall, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think there's any way to know. Hopefully, we'll get some clarity from Mike towards the end of this week. I don't know when their next availability is, but I'll check. But, I mean, guess as good as mine in the outfield. Like, it, it's going to be a combination of, trying to put together a halfway decent defensive outfield, which they haven't had the luxury of the past couple of seasons to also finding, like, I think it's also going to depend on who hits because if you have Hayden Leatherwood hit, if you had the Salmon's kid hit, like, like these corner outfield spots are either going to be guys that are pretty good defenders or they're going to be guys you're finding a way uh, to get them in the lineup because of their bat. a la Thomas Dillard, Whoever else you want to I meet, mean, I think. I mean, they're experimenting with Kevin Graham in the outfield some as well because they need. Yeah, to let's go the there. Offense. I have a qu- another question for you. Uh, looking at D one's preview, they have three freshmen and a transfer starting uh, for Ole Miss in their projections, and all three outfielders are either 
a freshman or a transfer. Is that how that's going to shake out in reality? I think it's a possibility. So I, I saw D1 has Peyton Chautenay, which is, I figured out how to pronounce that, in left field, Cade Sammons in center, and Hayden Leatherwood in right field. Sammons is an athletic kid, pretty good defender, uh, pretty quick, and kind of one of those gap-to-gap power guys, to whereas uh, Chautenay is a vers- more versatile guy, has a little bit more power, and then Leatherwood, obviously, a, a pretty pretty good hitter. Uh, like I mean, definitely has, has plus power. At the plate, so I don't know. I, I, I if it's if it's that opening day, would I be stunned? No, but I, I tend to still think that they're gonna tr- maybe try to get Justin Bench in center. I know they. I think uh, the D one projection had him at second base. He played some second base last year. Obviously, Servidio going to play shortstop. I mean, was with that if if it's the opening day lineup, if if that's the one, and then Bench is at second base, is that shocking to me? No. But in a month and a half in, as you're getting into SEC play, if Bench is not still at second and not in the outfield, I've I got to admit, I'll be mildly surprised. But again, with the amount of uncertainty in the outfield, it's really hard to it's really hard to gauge. I mean, I think it's going to be a balance of trying to get the Salmons kid out there who had a pretty good fall. He's a good defender. You know, maybe looking at Connor Walsh. I mean, you could look at Chatney at second base. I think too. So I. Like it's it's going to be a mix of like who's hitting and who's going to be a pretty good defender. Like like what are the corner outfield slots going to be dudes that are, can go out there and get it, or are they going to be guys like Leatherwood to where you need to get their bat in the lineup, or Kevin Graham because you need his bat in the lineup. So it, it's going to be an interesting blend, and I think the DH position is also going to have something to do with this as well as who's DHing because if you have a kid like the Triple Crown kid, Kale Baker, uh, the big whiskey meat guy, uh, kind of a hefty fella. Long hair gives off a big Sykes Orvis vibe. If he's like, if this team's struggling for offense and this kid's mashing the ball, and you need like you need to find him somewhere, he's probably DHing, and that probably means Kevin Graham's getting one of the corner outfield slots. And so I think this would be a very fluid. I'm saying a lot of words to say. I think this is a very fluid situation. I would say opening day lineup. The odds of that outfield being the regular outfield they go with are very small. Fair enough. Um, is there anything else we need to know? I mean, what about this Derek Diamond kid? So, I mean, you you know what Nikhazy's got. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. You're the baseball guy. Uh, the stuff is really good. Um, maybe not high end, but the kid just battles and, and he's mentally tough. And, I mean, if you want anybody facing these Friday night guys in the SEC, I think it's him, isn't it? Because I, I've had so many people tell me, they wish that Bianco would save Nikhazy for Saturdays because you're not winning any Friday games considering how good the pitching is in the SEC. But one, I think that's dumb to begin with. But also, if you want anybody pitching against these high-end Friday night arms, isn't it this kid with his mentality? Uh, Even though his stuff isn't as good as theirs, the way he battles and the way he pitches, um, I mean, you can win games against those guys with somebody like him. And then also, what's Derek Diamond like? I think there's two schools of thought on the Nikhazy thing. Because as we, we talked a little bit about on radio yesterday, you've seen a lot of guys thrive in the Saturday role or game two. I, I keep calling it Saturday role, but they keep flexing hey, but people more know, games to Thursday. People know yeah, game two, whatever, your second guy. People slide, 
like people seem to seamlessly slide into that role and have success. I'm thinking Christian Trent when they went to Omaha in 14. I mean, I think what well, he he didn't lose a game. I think he was undefeated. Unbelievable. Still a pretty good Friday night guy the next year, but not quite the same. So, you know, Will Etheridge on Saturdays the year. Feigl was the Friday night guy two years ago. Kind of the same deal. Pretty good, but not – If I think I have that right. Maybe I'm misremembering. Correct me if I am. But uh, type. point being, it's a little easier to succeed on Saturdays because you're not always seeing the top-level arm talent. It's a little different for teams after facing a Friday night guy. It's, it's a little bit of an easier role to succeed in. I think that role was perfect for Nikhazy because he's like draft prospect wise, he doesn't have like the elite, elite level stuff. Like the, the, the Ryan Rollison breaking ball and his secondary stuff behind his fastball type of thing. So, but he battles it. He's a hell of a smart pitcher and his stuff's still very much good enough to where he's not like, like he's not like Greg Maddoxing you and nibbling at the corners and like kind of like thumbing it over the plate or whatever. It's still plenty fine. But it's a little bit different beast when you're going up against first, second round arm talents every single night on Friday nights in the SEC. Do I think he's capable of it? Sure, absolutely. But will there be maybe a little bit of a drop off because of who his opposition is on the other side of the mound on each Friday night? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've seen that with a couple of guys. So do you move home so to what Friday? Would you do? I'd probably just go with Nikhazy. I'm in the school of thought as I would like my best and most reliable guy going on Friday nights and giving me a chance to win because I think winning that first game of a series on an SEC weekend is gigantic. And, you know, Ole Miss back-ended a ton of series in the last couple of seasons, but I, I just think that's, that's – to me, I want my best and most trusted guy going out there. But what's going to be interesting with this team is Hoagland, who's a four-pitch guy who really just threw strikes to a fault last year. He didn't throw the ball outside of the zone enough. I mean – in high school, he was a pro- he was obviously first round pick of the Pirates, but he just kind of lived on getting by with his fastball in high school and really got kind of eaten alive when he got to college because of that. But point being, if he's like, it can be a fluid; it can change up. Like if he's absolutely tearing it up through the first couple months of the season, the stuff looks good. He's getting a lot of swings and misses. I guess you could flip flop him. I mean, I guess I mean you could go Hoagland on Friday and Casey on Saturday. I'm not sure why. You would do that, but if you if you would like Nikhazy back in the Saturday role when you get to SEC play, I think that's certainly possible. Don't see it happening. So I don't know. There's two schools of thought on it. Do you want him on Saturdays where he's because he seems to be perfect for that role? Smart pitcher, going to work around you, get you out. You know, not going to make a ton of mistakes. Uh, perfect Saturday guy, but maybe not quite the same level of stuff as a lot of Friday night guys. I think you can get around it. Will Etheridge was pretty good on Fridays last year and didn't have. The same great stuff. So, I don't know. Two ways to think about it. I, I don't. I don't. Not sure there's necessarily a right and a wrong way, but I would bet on him being the Friday night guy the most of the year. The last part of that, Derek Diamond. Oh, he's he and the Drew McDaniel kid are kind of the same in the sense they're about 90, 94. Got a pretty good command of secondary stuff for where they're at right now. A really talented kid. I, I think he ends up winning the Sunday job. But it's, it's so hard to tell because, like, if, as I pointed out a couple times last year, like, you were talking about what kind of role Nikhazy could play as a left-hander in a right-handed heavy bullpen, and he ends up being the most invaluable piece on the team, and they literally would not be anywhere close to where they finished without him. So it's always hard to tell, but I, I think he's a talented kid. You know, he's got a pretty good slider and changeup, like, probably ahead of the – probably – a little bit better than his breaking ball from everything I've heard. So 
I, I think he's got enough to be a good Sunday guy. But, you know, again, it's so hard to tell because if you get in and the kid gets lit up a couple of times, you know, a la Zach Phillips, a la Gunnar Hoagland a little bit, and they have to mix it up, I think they've got other options. So I do think that'll be the opening weekend rotation. Does it stay that way? I would say that's a safer bet than, like, the lineup kind of remaining the same. Hmm. Well, that's exciting. Uh, I mean, this team is not exactly projected to be worth anything. I mean, I guess D1 has them going to a regional, but um, nobody expects all that much out of them. Do you think there's a a better chance that the preseason prognostications, like them finishing sixth in the West and uh, being a fringe bubble team, do you think it's more likely that they are that or worse or slightly better, if not a lot better than that? That's tough because the league's so damn good that, like, as I mentioned a couple of times on the on the radio show or probably this podcast Monday or last week or whatever, it's like you could have really good teams in the SEC this year go 11-19 and 19 and be on the outside looking into a tournament. So I think D1 nailed them pretty solidly. I think they'll be a fringe tournament team. Their schedule's brutal. I think they'll be in a lot of games. I think they'll struggle at times, and I think the schedule will cause a couple of slides and you know, anytime you lose a lot of power and you have a lot of newcomers or a lot of run production, I should say, and you have a lot of newcomers trying to fill that gap, there's most often always a little bit of a drop off. Is there a world where, you know, Dunhurst, Leatherwood, Baker, you know, what have you hit pretty well? Kevin Graham takes a huge jump. You get what you've been hoping to get out of Tim Elko for the last two years and they just completely take flight. Yeah, but I would say fringe tournament team more likely than that to worse probably a little more likely but i mean there's a lot of unknown with this team so like you can't really cement them into anything it wouldn't shock me either way but i guess if you're if you're making me bet on it probably fringe ncaa tournament team to slightly worse as opposed to better but again plenty of upside to be better it, it's it will the first couple of months i excuse me first couple of weeks of this season particularly opening weekend will be fascinating to see if they can hit and to see if the pitching is as good as advertised. All right. Sounds good to me. Well, we'll get into more of that on Friday. I'll probably have some more thoughts after talking to Aaron Fit. We'll have that for you on Thursday. Unless you got anything else, I'm going to get out of here. That's about it, man. I just got to uh, sit down and get us ready for the radio show today, which be which will be a lot of basketball considering what happened to Ole Miss last night. And Mississippi State, man, they might just be good. Huge win. Yeah, they are good. They got enough. They got a lot of talent. When they're right, they're good. Yeah. So that that'll cool. be the focus today. We'll talk about Coach K being a petulant child, uh, and then, dude, it's Super Bowl week and it's Wednesday. We, yeah, we it's kind of fun it. under the radar. It's like you know it's going to be a good matchup. Like there's not really any like it's not like there's not compelling storylines, but I feel like you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and not a whole lot of fireworks out of Miami, other than uh, there was an earthquake that they felt yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. I did. I saw that really badly. Uh, what was it? Cuba and one other island really caught the brunt of that. Jamaica and the Caymans. And uh, shockingly, like as far as I know, nobody got hurt, even though it was a 7.7, which is massive. Um, and there was no tsunami because apparently the plates, like, I, I don't know, they, instead of colliding they slipped under each other or or something um but that and then the 49ers having to replace the university of miami's practice field 
because the conditions of the field were so bad that they and the NFL would not let them practice on it. So the 49ers paid for them to resurface their field, and they already did that a year ago. So not a good look for Miami. Probably not great. But that was Geology Corner. Uh, you learn something new every day on this podcast. Yeah. So, we'll, uh, come tune into the radio show. Come join us 3 to 6 this afternoon. Uh, we'll have, like I said, Aaron Fit tomorrow. Mailbag Friday. Friday, get your questions in. Tweet us, text us, uh, email us. Whatever you, your form of communication, you can get reach us through. Send it in. We'll be talking, I'm sure, more college baseball. And then we'll finally do a ton of Super Bowl, I imagine, on Friday. Get the final picks in. All of that on Friday, but if you like what you heard today, like and subscribe to the podcast. Go to LB's. uh, Tell them that we sent you. Go get some sausages. Great place. Go get some steaks. We really appreciate Greg sponsoring the show. But for Michael Borky, I am Brian Scott Rippey, and we'll be back at it on the People's Holiday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.